0: Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout.
1: Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
0: Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer, here with my co-host Max Linsky and my co-host slash guest Evan Ratliff. That's right. It's another meta episode of the Longform Podcast in which hosts interview each other.
2: We like to throw people for a loop in that way. They, They never know which host is hosting or which host might be a guest. I can't think of any other times where the show has been even a little bit meta.
0: It's interesting because we actually have a kind of an abundance of episodes right now. You'd think this would be happening when we were really desperate that we would just suggest interviewing each other. But actually, I chose Evan out of many episodes we could have released this week. And uh, it was a great decision because I got to listen to his new podcast, Persona, available in podcast apps everywhere. We are about to talk about it in this interview mild mild spoiler alert i give it like what would you give it like a four out of ten on the spoiler scale evan
2: yeah i think so that sounds about right a little bit of spoiler
0: okay well so if you want to listen before the interview go for it if not you'll probably be fine there was a good reason to put it out this week though which is that episode eight of persona came out on monday and uh
2: episode eight i'll just say i have no bias on this at all fucking great podcast
0: episode we got the executive producer of the podcast in here also, Max Linsky. <laughs> uh, we produce this show with
2: our friends at Vox, thanks to them. And now here's Aaron interviewing Evan.
0: Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. Evan interviewed me about my podcast, Exit Scam. And I'm now here to interview him about his newly released podcast, Persona. Welcome, Evan Ratliff. It's great to be here, Aaron. It's especially great to be here because I love these where you have to do all the work. I don't have to do anything. I just have to answer your questions. The show, as we say this, I think uh, six or seven out of the eight episodes are out. I've now listened to the whole thing by the time this is out. Like, we'll be close to the whole thing being out. But this just went down like a nice cold glass of water. I was uh, I was commuting into the city. I was listening to it. Went for a really nice walk. Listened to the last couple episodes. It has nothing to do with this interview. I just want to tell you what a great time I had listening to your podcast.
2: Well, I I appreciate that. That's that's good good to know. If it was if it was torture, uh, eight hours of torture, almost eight hours. I guess they're forty minutes or something. That wouldn't be
0: great. All right, so I, I'm going to try not to spoiler. This uh, too much of the second half of the show because there are some twists in there, but apologies in advance if we do spoiler any of it. But you have the basic premise of the show, which I would describe as kind of encapsulated in the first episode, which is this notorious uh, scam that took place in France, heavily covered by the media. There's a French movie about it. And kind of my impression when I started listening to the show was Oh, Persona is a show about this scam and the guy behind it, which is true, but there are several other layers uh, that come into play beyond that initial scam as the show goes on. How do you think about like how many layers you need to fill out one of these shows? It doesn't feel like it would have worked if it was just the original scam. It feels like it needs that kind of twist level to work.
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, partly because I've done a lot of scam stories. So, if you either write or produce or on the other end consume scam stories, you kind of discover that they all start to sound the same in certain ways. And it can just make them boring. You know, it's like the idea that people can be deceived and that they could be talked out of their money. It's like it's an ancient idea and it's one where the scams get replicated. Like the same elements are introduced over and over again in the scams. And so for me, that kind of like raises the bar on what kind of scam story I actually want to ever do, especially if it's going to be like eight episodes of a podcast. So yeah, I mean there were there were more kind of strands and themes than ended up in there in the end, but the big ones were gonna be like, is this guy interesting enough like is he can we establish that he kind of pioneered something that feels different and that had some like larger life to it that extended beyond him that we could get into and then part of it was like was there something within the scam the elements of the scam the the targets the victims and him that felt like we could pull some hopefully new and different themes out of them and like we spent a long time like prototyping, uh, you know, pilot episode. And I had been following this for years and years and years and years. So we had like a pretty good idea that that stuff was in there and then we set out to do it. And then we had to like find the reporting that would prop it all up.
0: So tell me about when you became aware of the character in the show, Gilbert Chicley and how like what you had of this story evolved over time. I first
2: read about this scam in 2005, and I had this like French newspaper story from Liberation. I have it right. It's in the folder right next to my desk right now. It's like this old printout that I printed off the web, and it, lo- it has that like old web design, you know, like it wasn't really well designed for the web. And I was obsessed with Gilbert C. They didn't even print his last name at the time because he wasn't formally accused because it had just happened. But it was basically like a guy had called up this bank manager and he had convinced her first that he was the CEO of the bank or the head of the bank and then said that they were doing a secret project to stop terrorist money laundering. And then she was going to hear from a secret agent. He then called back as the secret agent and then convinced her to take 360,000 euros out of the bank in cash and then hand it to someone in a bathroom stall in a cafe in downtown Paris. And this woman did this, then discovered it was a scam when the money was supposed to be returned to her with marked bills so that they could catch the terrorists. Of course, the money never came back. She went to the police. And then he started pulling off the scam over and over. So I had seen this one article and it was just like the idea of this woman passing a bag of over 300,000 euros in cash in a bathroom. That detail was basically like, I thought about it all the time. Like once a year, I'd just be like, what's going on with Gilbert Schickley. And from a kind of like freelance reporter trying to sell stories, I just never really found a place where I could do it. I didn't, I didn't even pitch it. I would just be like, ah, there's not enough there. Or at the beginning, no one will send me to go investigate this. Cause he was in Israel. The crimes took place in France. It was like a big project. And then he became so famous that I was like, oh, everyone knows about this. No one's gonna take this story because they're making a movie about him in France. And then there was like another round of scams that started. And then again, this is spoiler for some of the stuff that happens later in the show, but he gets arrested. And then when he got arrested the second time, I was kind of like. I think it could be done. Like, I think I could go do it now because I feel like the full story of his history is actually much richer than if I had done it at any point along the way. And then when he was prosecuted, that's when I started working on the story,
0: actually like trying to report it. There's a funny quality of either you jump the gun and there isn't enough there and you're also competing with a lot of people or you wait, which is kind of a form of gambling you gambled that this story would have more if you you know put it in the hopper for 17 years um after that initial encounter
2: yeah yeah and i i i never want to take something on unless i feel like i can really get into it and find out something new that other people haven't found out or or at least get to people that haven't talked or come with a new approach like the worst thing for me is to be doing a story where it's appearing a bunch of other places, and it's just different versions of the same thing with mostly the same people talking. And you're right. I mean, these days, especially if you do like international crime, scams, organized crime. And for my book, I've had, I don't know, 10 different documentary filmmaker, director, producer types who are like, I'm working on a thing about Paul LaRue, which my book was about and I'm working with Netflix, you know, they're all working with Netflix. And I don't think Netflix even knows that they're all out there saying like, maybe they did one thing that they were associated with that appeared on Netflix. It's just like, there's like a swarm of people around certain types of stories. And I mean, most of the time I'll just walk away if I encounter that when I start reporting, because I just don't want to deal with like, people who are there potentially paying sources you know, also they're telling them they're going to be famous. They're telling them to be on TV. Like, it's a terrible situation. But then there are also these ones that just kind of slip under the radar because everyone already thinks that they've been done. And Schickley was a good example of that because there was a French movie about him. I think he was sort of famous enough in Israel and France that he seemed a little like done, but actually had this entire second act that was way more interesting in his life that was not covered because it felt like oh, we know we know about him. We know what he's done. So I like stories like that where everyone forgets about it and then I
0: can go in and there's no one else there. In the meantime, between you hearing about the story and bringing it to fruition 17 years later, you've done a series of stories. Uh, the main one that comes to my mind is the uh, Hush Puppy story that focus on these emergent forms of fraud and crime that... Target large businesses for money transfers, so it does seem like some of that work that you've done and sort of understanding how these schemes work uh, applies to multiple of these stories that you've done.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the that's the phenomenon that I've been interested in for the last couple of years, and it was it's basically like the hush puppy story and this story. I mean, people will say like it's the golden age of scamming, and I think there's different elements of that. And one of them is like the calls that you get all the time of people trying to scam you individually. But the real money is in running these huge email and CEO impersonation scams where they get like 30, 40, $50 million at a time from a company by persuading them that they are the CEO of the company and they need an urgent transfer because they're making an acquisition or just getting inside their email. That's the hush puppy story was you know his gang or the the network he was associated with they were just infiltrating people's email forging invoices and getting tens of millions of dollars at a time and to me that's like a phenomenon that we haven't really grappled with entirely like there's always been scammers but you're talking about someone on one side of the world just sitting at a computer and taking 30 million dollars out of like a large public company in the United States that notion is completely insane. And I feel like I've been trying to find ways into that that make for interesting stories to tell that will convey that. Because the scams themselves can be like rote or boring just in their, in their details. Shickly, I think, is different.
0: Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. When you started on Chiclay, it seems like it wasn't particularly well known who his co-conspirators were. There was co-conspirators for the first wave of crimes, uh, one of whom I believe went to prison. And then, uh, well, I won't spoiler alert what happened to him, but you find out what happened to him in in the show. But fast forwarding to now... uh, who he was working with now if he was doing anything at all was kind of unknown. So when you picked this up and you started needing to like find people who'd actually interacted with Chick-Lay, who'd actually done these scams, where did you start? Well, we started
2: where where I usually start, which is like with the court documents. So the French court documents are generally less extensive than what you would find in the states. And so you can't get all of the filings the way you would get here, but you can get a pretty extensive, at least summary of sort of what all the evidence was in the case. And then, you know, we start trying to find those people. Oftentimes you're going through the lawyers for those people and trying to figure out where they are. Are they in prison? Are they out of prison? And then we we got really, really lucky in one way. I mean, on on the one hand, like we got lucky. On the other hand, it was just good reporting on on the part of this reporter, Chris Knapp, who we were working with in Paris. He was a producer on the show, and he was doing a lot of stuff from Paris. And someone gave him the police file on the case. When I say full police file, I mean 25,000 pages of every piece of evidence that the police obtained. In trying to track this particular case, the funny thing is we don't even talk about it in the show that much. But like, we got it for his earlier one too—the earlier scam. So there's two sets of scams. There's a 2005 one and a 2015 one, and that one's even bigger. It's like thirty thousand pages or something. And this was like reporting goldmine. Like, it's if you listen to the show, it's like a character in the show. You know, it's like so crucial to how we both find the people because they're all in there but also how we fill in all the gaps that normally you can't fill in because you only know what the police present through the prosecutors in court, which is like their best version of what they have. And then when you see everything they have, then you start seeing both what they missed, what they fucked up, who they had, who they never went after, and also what they really had on the people involved. And so once we had that, we kind of shifted from the normal, let's go through the lawyers and try to find the people to like, oh, let's use this as our starting point, And we will use this to find as many people as we can who are involved. Now, of course, that's also like a volume game where you're, you're basically like contacting all these people, most of whom will never talk to you, some of whom will yell at you and then trying to find the one or two who will actually like, for whatever reason, decide that they want to talk.
0: And I should um, say that there's an additional degree of difficulty here because that's all in French, maybe with a little Hebrew mixed in. Uh, how, how did you deal with that part? Do you speak French? Uh, no,
2: I would say I don't speak French. I can speak a little French, but I'm terrified to speak French. I took French in like junior high and high school, six years of French. But sadly, only certain elements were retained. So I can read it. Because you like you just have a lot more time to just sit with it. So I can read things and get the very basic gist. And then it turned out that when we did interviews, because they were very domain-specific, I could ask someone a question in English. And they often understood the questions in English. And if they spoke back to me in French, I could understand what they were saying. Because it was like, I kind of knew what the boundaries were of what they were going to say. So my brain would sort of fill in the words that I didn't know. So that worked, but if if you dropped me into like, as I was in Paris, like in a French cafe, and I'm like overhearing someone, I have no, I'm clueless. Like I'm not good at understanding sort of like pure French. So that was a huge challenge. That was part of the reason why I didn't do the the story for a long time. But then it was kind of like I don't know. Then it was in there was Hebrew, there was Turkish, there was Polish, there was uh, so, you know, like Ukrainian documents. So after a while like the fact that there was more languages made me feel less embarrassed that i wasn't like fluent in the main language because we were going to have to use a bunch of translators anyway so we had incredible translators and reporters who worked with
0: us including chris knapp who i mentioned who's in paris when you're interviewing a french subject are you like sitting next to a producer who speaks french how do you conduct an interview well we did it all sorts of different ways so
2: we had Sometimes we did Zoom interviews in which there would be in one box a translator and in one box me and in one box the subject. And then in one box, like one of our producers from Pineapple, like Henry Malofsky would be maybe there listening as well. Um, and then sometimes we tried to get them to speak English. So if they spoke a little bit of English, it was this question of like, would you rather their their like somewhat broken English be in the show? Or would you rather have like, a, a pure statement of their story in French, and then we'll translate it later. And then in person, we would have sometimes have a translator, but then I kept making, I think, what was a mistake and rightfully identified by the extremely talented producers as a mistake that I could understand a lot of what they were saying. So I would just ignore the translator and I would just continue. So, like, they would answer in French, and I would say, Ah, yeah, I understand what you're saying. Like, here's my next question based on that but then we had no live translation on tape like on tape it was me speaking english and them speaking french and so they would have to be voiced over by like an actor with wonderful french accents and voices to like do the voices so some of the things were voiced over some of the things like i translated in the show but it was actually like a very complicated question it kind of like came up every time like how are we going to do this one and eventually like the producer said to me like can you just let the translator translate even if you understand, like, please, we understand that you are proud that you know a little bit of French. but like, could you please just like let the translator translate it so that we will have that for the tape? And even after they told me, I still sometimes I wouldn't do it. like I was so I was so into the fact that I could understand French that i I was like not doing the the best thing for the show. But the shorter answer is like we tried all sorts of things, and you can hear them in the show. Like it's done different ways with different people, depending how long they're in there. If we, it's a long
0: segment with them or it's just like one quote, basically. What did you feel like you needed to get to get this show to work? And tell me about some of the like low points where you weren't sure you were going to be able to get it. <laughs> I could I I talk
2: a lot about the low points. I mean, this is a phenomenon. I think that's happening a lot where, I mean, of course, like you and I have done a podcast for 10 years. Uh, so I am a podcaster, but I've not done narrative audio, and so it's a different animal. I've written many magazine stories and books, whatever else, and the differences like they come to light when you start writing the scripts, you know, like you can go out and do the reporting, but when you write the scripts, you realize, oh, there are certain things that I can write my way out of in a normal story that I cannot write my way out of here. Like if the tape isn't there, it can't just be straight narration. Now, one of the low points was just like, when we couldn't get reporting that I thought we were gonna get. Like there were all kinds of things that I thought, maybe we may, if you made a list of 20 ideal reporting moments that I wanted. And I was like, if we get five of these, we're gold. And it was like, one guy died right before we we're gonna interview him. We were, had definitely identified him as our best possible source. We'd been talking to him for months. He was like, I'm going to tell you everything. I'm going to tell you the story that's not been told. He's like, your dream. The stuff he's saying is a dream. And then but he wanted to do it in person. And then we tried to meet up with him, and it didn't work out. And then we, we should have just forced him to do a Zoom. You know, We should have just gotten that. But instead, we were like, okay, we're coming to Israel. He's going to be in Israel. And then he died within like 12 hours before we were supposed to interview him. And I mean, that was absolutely a low point because it was a just a sad life moment. But then also, we felt like we were fucked, you know, like we had lost our best source. And then you kind of like, feel guilty for feeling bad. It's like self, you know, it's a selfish feeling to say like, this person died, his family and friends are bereft. And like, our show is screwed, you know, that's like, terrible that's a terrible feeling to have on top of it all. So it's trying to like orient yourself around all of that. And so then, you know, we didn't have anyone else die, but we had a bunch of moments like that where we sort of thought something was going to come through and then it just didn't, or someone had tapes and we were like, we're going to get these tapes. And then they disappeared or they turned out they didn't have the tapes at all. And that became very like, I became very upset about that over time. Like, we're just not getting the stuff that we need and very afraid that we would run into this problem that I would have to just, like, narrate the whole thing. But as it turned out, like, we had gotten more than I thought, I think, along the way. Like, when we actually sat down and looked at it, and the producers, like, again, Henry Malofsky, Sophie Bridges at Pineapple, like, they they know what they're, they're, like, incredibly talented at this. So I think they were a little more aware of, like, we've got good stuff. then I was, I'm just paranoid about never having enough reporting. And then we also had this police file, but the police file, it's not audio. Like, so we had to find ways to like animate that, to like pull that into narrative while also using the tape that we have around it. So it wouldn't just be me like talking. But there are like, for me, surprisingly long segments of me just talking in the show.
0: Yeah. And then on the flip side, there's audio of things that I would have never possibly thought there was going to be audio of. Like, there's audio of, like, the Aga Khan getting scammed, you know? And it's very obviously real audio that's in no way, like, staged or recreated. It's, like, the sound of an old man getting scammed. Uh, Wait, How did you get... Are you you comfortable saying how you got that?
2: Um, I can't say who it came from, but, I mean, basically, these incredibly wealthy people were scammed. Two in particular, the Aga Khan... Uh, in France, and Anand uh, Kuraj, who's like one of the wealthiest people in Turkey. And so they were both scammed in, in for tremendous amounts of money, a total of like $70 million. And there were tapes. Once they figured out what was going on, in but one case, the police made tapes, in the other case, the Anand Kuraj himself or his people made tapes. So these, we knew these tapes existed because they were the primary thing that was used in in court. So they were played out loud in court, but no one was allowed to record anything in court. So we knew a lot of people had copies of these tapes. So it was basically a many months process of mostly Chris, our reporter in Paris, like trying to figure out who to ask. When we went to Paris, we would ask everybody, you know, like, do you have the tapes? Like, hey, what about the tapes? You know, turn off the recorder and be like, one more thing. What about the tapes? And they were like, oh, I think this person has the tapes. Or, oh, I think they're in my storage facility. And it was just like, endless uh grasping at this thing that we knew like that would make the show like if we had those tapes that would make the show and then like we got them and it was i mean it was pretty great for as a reporting moment that and like the police file uh were some of the best reporting moments i've had in my career i would say
3: Built to be accessible, empowering, and community-building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com.
0: There's a piece of the tone of Persona, and I'm not... Singling persona out because I think this is almost standard fare for narrative podcasts where you kind of break the fourth wall and you're like, I'm going to tell you a story about this. We're going to do this. And it's going to like tell you about this scammers, which are a modern phenomenon that means this. And I think it like struck me because I know you so well that I was like, A moment like this would never be in one of Evan Ratliff's magazine stories. And I'm curious, like as someone who's got a long, long history doing uh, print work, what it was like adapting to that kind of writing and how you thought about those ingredients in the storytelling. It was, it's definitely
2: tricky to adapt. Like a lot of the go-to moves in a magazine story for me didn't really work in this environment and had to be shed. And then you're absolutely right like I mean in a magazine story I would call that a nut graph and I'm like extremely resistant to nut graph or billboard graphs in magazine stories like the 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 paragraph that says like I'm going to tell you what this story is about, you know. It's like like an introduction in a book. To me like an introduction in a book is not uh, that's not something that I want to find in a narrative book. I just want to get into the story and read the story and learn what I'm going to learn and be pulled along in an entertaining and surprising way uh, with some you know narrative tension like that's how I want it to work. I don't want someone to say like this book is going to be about x, y, and Z. You know that's a different kind of informational book or informational magazine story. however, and this is a discussion that I had many, many times with Joel Lovell, who is the editor of the show who has also been on the long form podcast way back when he was a magazine editor, Um, that audio, you just, because of the way people consume it, uh, you need, you need different markers. Like you need different frames. You need to set people up in different ways for what they're going to hear and orient them in it so that they will stay with it. And I was like, I was resistant to it and we had a lot of back and forth about what it would be and where it would live. And, you know we landed on what i think is a is a a a good version of it but the funny thing is like it's all new to me like i hadn't done it before so i don't really have sta- except having listened to a bunch of podcasts which i love i love narrative podcasts like i don't really have any standing to tell people who've been working in audio a long time how it should go so like that was a, that's a tension also it's like i feel like i know what i'm doing when it comes to writing and reporting but also Clearly, I don't have the expertise to like know exactly how this story should be told. So there was that was like the push and pull of editing, which was both Joel and the producers who also know how audio should be shaped. So it's like all of us trying to figure out where that stuff goes.
0: What I think is interesting about that kind of billboarding early on is that in this context, a story that does have a twist in it, you're actually not billboarding where this story is going. There's almost like a, a scammeried switch in the narrative. But the way that you've structured the story, you don't say, and we're going to see if he was wrongly convicted uh, 15 years later of this other crime. That part is hidden and we don't sort of know. Like I was thinking at about episode three, I was like, wow, I wonder what Evan is going to fill five more episodes here with and that is not uh, billboarded <laughs> you know what i mean yeah well you're ma-
2: this is making me very happy because we haven't talked about this before but like that to me is the actual underlying theme of the show which is that one of these kinds of big scams or cons is like a story and in the story what they're doing is they're manipulating you to be a participant in the story and they're getting you so hooked That you will not just do anything they say, but you will invest yourself in bringing the story to its conclusion. And, like, isn't that what you're doing if you're trying to get someone to listen to eight episodes, spend that much of their life listening to your voice talking about things? Like, I viewed it as this interesting, like, parallel. It's not really a scam. And I feel like the other folks that worked on the show were didn't like it when I described it as like, aren't we doing a scam too? Cause it's not a scam, (laughs) but it's like, ultimately we're doing that both for journalistic reasons, but also so that like the show can exist and like they sell ads against it. And it's a commercial endeavor at some level. Like, I really think that parallel is fascinating. I think the idea that we also, that every story has this person pulling the strings and they can manipulate you in all sorts of ways whether they're still telling a true story or not to me that's I find that very interesting and I I feel like I like re- revisiting that in in everything that I do and here it was just like it felt like we could really weave it into the show itself
0: was it difficult like after taking on this initial challenge of telling the first story then you have sort of another set of crimes that potentially were done by a different person who's introduced pretty late, like almost the second half of this podcast, almost could be a second season of the podcast in which the stakes are dramatically changed. How deep did you feel like you had to get into those crimes and that additional suspect to feel like you had done this sort of secondary story?
2: Very deep. I mean, I, I felt like it was, it was tricky and I like, I really hope it works for people like i not that many people have heard the full thing yet so like i don't actually know if it works for a lot of people yet or not but there were these two sets of scans which were similar but the second one built on the first one and they were 10 years apart and so it was like we kept having this question can we pull people into one and then exit it and then pull them into a whole another one and We The hope is that there's enough new and different in the second one that you start to see like, oh, wait, there's something bigger and and different going on here. And then also the idea that there might be other people behind it is kind of like we have the police story and the police story is that this guy is the mastermind and we're going to catch him. Like we know from the beginning that it's this guy because he did it before. And so you're kind of like, you get caught up in that too. You know, as a listener, you're like caught up in that. And if you go, if someone were to listen really carefully, like I never say he did it. It's just like, this is what the police are saying along the way. So it seems very much like maybe we're saying that he did it. And, you know, the court might be saying he did it. But then we wanted to kind of like unwind that in the last episode.
0: It would almost be wrong to not mention you couldn't really talk about chiclay without mentioning that he is i believe currently in jail for this crime and that there's significant evidence he did not commit that crime and that police actually thought someone else committed that crime or at least was a co-conspirator in that crime
2: yeah and it's also like for me the the courtroom aspect of it is it's not like uh I don't know. It's not like an innocence project type case in the US where it's like uh th- is this person on death row, you know, improperly on death row, but I mean you got a guy who is like an admitted scammer, like he's bragged about being one of the world's great scammers, who's convicted in a scam. He's going to be in prison for another up to 10 years probably for it. But like if you look at the evidence, it's not even a question of like there being like clearly exonerating evidence for him. It's like is there enough evidence to convict this person? Or was this person convicted on the reputation that he himself created about himself? so he basically built himself up as a genius and trapped himself in that persona that's why this that's why it's called that's why the whole thing's called persona and then they used it against him, you know, and so are there ways to take a normal like courtroom type drama and kind of change it and make it feel? Different to people, and, and find some themes in there that are not the themes that you encounter in in every story. So that was kind of what we hoped we found with him was like, oh, actually, the closer you look at this, the stranger and more
0: complicated it actually gets. So now, having one of these under your belt, what do you feel like works in this format that was surprising, or like, oh, wow, that that really came together, and what of the stuff? You know, from your experience of doing many, many other print stories, do you feel like doesn't work in a story like this?
2: There's lots of things like in a normal magazine story, you just like quote someone, you know, you could quote someone just a single quote, two sentences, you introduce them in the middle, you say, blah, 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 says this person, an expert on this from this university. And then, and then they're gone, But you just like, that just doesn't work. Like, everybody has to be a character. That you like pull on stage and you try to find ways to like lodge them in the memory of the listener and that's something that like the producers and joel the editor like they would just remind me over and over is like you gotta find ways and the people who are amazing at this who have done lots of of the best narrative audio like a brian reed or dan taberski or you know zoe chase or people like that like they know uh, it seems like instinctively now, probably how to do this, how to like lodge someone in the listener's memory, because especially over eight episodes, you're just like, who's that person again? Like, and uh, they're not going to remember the names and they can't look back. So when it happens naturally, you're like, oh, that's the thing. That's the thing I should have been doing with everyone. Like, I had this one, my favorite moment, it's not a reporting moment, but like my favorite moment like that in the whole show is like, this guy, this Israeli guy, it's, he's a lawyer for Gilbert Schickley, and he says, um, "You know, Gilbert, he just he's like a cat, like he has seven lives." And I was like, "What? You say you say seven? Like we say nine. And he was like, "No, we say seven here." And I just like just try to make conversation. I just said, "Oh yeah, that makes more sense," which do- <laughs> does it doesn't. Like nothing makes seven nine doesn't make sense. It's just an expression. And that was like I was so excited to put that in the show. But there were what I didn't do because part of it is like performance, you know, like it's not intentional performance, but sitting down with the mics on and just having like some chit chat like fun chit chat where you like ease into the interview, you don't just start asking questions, and I would do that in a in a reported interview, but it wouldn't we wouldn't tape it, you know, and like trying to get that so that you get a few things that give someone like just a little bit of human
0: human flavor for
2: people to like actually consume and like hold on to.
0: Like people do that naturally all the time, all the time you meet someone and you have like a funny little like moment with them, but trying to be like, okay, like dock it, meet, have funny moment, get into actual interview. It doesn't go that way unless you're like subtly guiding it that way. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's also why like some of the like, the this
2: type of material came at the end of the interviews for us because also if you sit down you can be chit-chatting and having like a really nice conversation and then someone sits down in front of a microphone and they just change you know they just completely change and that's not when you're doing print reporting it's not a problem because you're just holding a little recorder and they'd forget about it almost instantly or it might be on the table or something and so but it's when they sit in front of a microphone a lot of people take on a certain stiffness and formality That then it takes longer to work through. So I mean, this is all stuff that like, I hope no audio producers are listening. They're like, eyes are like rolling into the back of their heads with like, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for illuminating this topic. But I think it is like, it's useful to talk about because there are a lot of people who have not been doing audio who for, I think for reasons of like buzz and money, uh, are getting into narrative podcasting now. Like a lot of magazine type reporters and narrative reporters are doing this stuff because it's kind of like where the action is. And it's not as easy as just like dropping in and like sitting in front of a microphone and reciting your reporting. You know, it's
0: like, it's very, very, it's actually very, very hard. So as you go forward, how would you evaluate like what a good story to do as a podcast mini series is versus a print story versus just some story? Like, wh- what would you be looking for uh, if if you were going to do another one of these? I think well, first I'll say fortunately, like someone else will
2: always decide. Like, you got to pitch it to someone, and they have to say so. They'll they'll hopefully ask you all the questions that you need to have answered. But like the number one thing is, you know, can you get any of these people on tape? Like that would be the first thing I would ask. Or is there some sort of like existing audio that you're going to take advantage of and make the the center of it? So it can be the greatest story in the world, but like if you can't get people on tape, obviously it's not going to work for audio. But then I think the the next question is like a lot of these shows, including mine, like eight episodes is that's a like seems to be like an industry approach to a lot of these kind of shows. I mean, which is funny because I feel like some of the very very best like S Town is the very very best of this stuff and it i think it was only 6 you know so like i don't know why it has to be 8 but for commercial reasons perhaps 8 and for something to go over 8 30 40 minute even up to an hour episodes like it's a lot each one of the scripts is like 8000 words you know that's a long magazine story so You've got eight eight thousand word magazine stories, like the kind of story that you need to sustain over that. For me, is quite hard to find. Like it's like finding a book because you know the shows that don't have that, and you and you're an episode, you know, five, and it's kind of like now we're going to talk about to totally different people about a different story, and then it just you know they're just not enough. Like you can tell they're just filling in, and so that's the thing I'd be most paranoid about is like finding a story that sustains that much narrative, that much surprise in it, that even by episode eight, people will be like, I really want to find out what happens.
0: Yeah, I would agree with you that six is optimized and eight is like, ah, no one's really going to notice if we tack a couple episodes on the end of this here. Like, I was actually wondering in the episode where you go into all the copycats, I was like, is this going to come back and matter at all? Because like, I'm not sure I care. And then it's like, oh, yes no i it actually does matter a lot, but could see how you can start going off on some side streets that are interesting but do not like remerge with the main artery here, yeah, and
2: that was I was very afraid of that, like even we did this we did one episode that's it's connected, but it's it's a i would say like a thin connection when it comes to like directly having to do with the the character at the center of it i mean it is it is connected to him, but um pulling people into that and and be and I was afraid that people would listen to that and be like, oh, I see where this is going. Now the next, the rest of the episode is just going to be about something, each one will be about a different scam or whatnot. It'll just be totally different. And trying to like make sure that people knew that we were going to come back to it. And that's one of the things that is kind of disappointing to me about the way that podcasts get written about, which is like they're written up by people who have consumed like the first four episodes, which I guess is probably how like prestige TV is often covered too. But it's like, to me, it's like a book. Like it's, it's, it's a, it's the whole thing. It's like reading half a book and being like, well, I kind of recommend this book and people have been very nice. So I'm not complaining about their, their reviews of it, but it's just like, I want, I don't, by the time you get to the end, like everyone's already, done their thing and like there might not be anyone left to like i want someone to write like a full their full assessment of the whole book not
0: just like half the book and be like well there's some unanswered questions but you should listen to it well my assessment of the full book is that it was excellent i highly recommend it and uh thank you very much uh, for this interview
2: aaron i love talking to you on mic off mic i will return as a guest on the long form podcast anytime you want
0: Hey, that was the Longform Podcast. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks to my guest and co-host, Evan Ratliff. Thanks to my other co-host, executive producer of the podcast Discussed, Max Linsky. Thanks to Jackie Sajiko, who edited this episode. Thanks to our intern, Susan Peterson. Thanks to everyone over at Fox. We'll be back next week.